0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at Church.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. So we are in session 15 or on our journey through the Bible in a year. We're still in the books of the Kings and we're talking about the lowest point or one of the lowest points, spiritually speaking, in the history of Israel, the reign of King Ahab and the rise of the prophet Elijah. But again, before we uh, enter into God's word, we always want to do so prepared through a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and we thank you, Lord, for the majesty of your word and for the hope that we glean from it. Uh, Help us to use this time to conform more into the image of your son and to gain wisdom from these pages that uh, as we read these accounts of both the believers and the unbelievers from ages past, that we may grow stronger in our determination to remain faithful in all things and to choose peace, hope, and joy over the, the distractions of this world and earthly things. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. This should conclude our look at the book of First Kings. This is, again, the second half of the book where we're into the divided kingdom, focusing mostly on the kings of the northern kingdom, the kings of, of what we call Israel. That's the top ten confederated states under, at this time, King Ahab. And as we talked about last time, this is a very troubled kingdom. The kingdom of Judah, over the course of both books of the kings, will see twenty the rise of 20 kings over Judah. There will also be 20 kings over Israel. And they don't all follow the same line. Uh, we, we've already seen the fall of the, the dynasty of Jeroboam. It only lasted for two kings. Uh, the the uh, dynasty of Basha lasted for two kings. Zimri lasted for seven days. Tibni lasted for about four plus years, four and a half plus years. So within in the span of just a little time, we've already seen four destinies come and go in the same kingdom. We talked last week about King Omri, who was an officer under the military command of of King Elha, who had murdered him and and saw to the deposition of all of his uh, successors. He rises and reigns for a period of about 12 years, and he ends up dying of uh, natural causes. During his reign, however, he uh, believes heavily in syncretic rule, meaning that all of the king, all of the gods of the surrounding kingdoms are welcome in as long as you remain faithful to me as your supreme ruler. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Who's supposed to be ruler over the people of Israel? God is supposed to be the ruler. The king acts as the servant of God and is supposed to remain loyal singularly to God. But instead, uh, Omri as well as everybody else before and a few after him will prostitute themselves, as the Bible says, before foreign gods. In fact, Ahab, once he marries into a political arrangement with a northern king, he will disavow the worship of the God of Israel in favor of the gods of the Canaanites. Now, the, the sad thing about Omri's reign, getting into it, is that Omri was a very good strategic military commander, and apparently he was also a very good uh, economic leader. Because in this time period, we see Israel rise to the point that it grows militarily, it grows in wealth. It is still considered a vassal state uh, of the rising powers to the, the far of the Middle East, in, toward the area of Babylon Ur, of the Chaldees and so forth. But uh, it, it is growing economically, it's growing militarily. And uh, unfortunately, it's not stable politically. There is so much wealth amassed that Omri's son Ahab is able to construct a palace for himself adorned wall to wall with ivory. Let's talk a little bit about these competing gods of the Canaan area. The most popular that you will hear in your Bible is Baal. He's the principal god of the Phoenician and the Canaanite pantheon. In fact, he is the god... the the primary god of the city that will later become Carthage in North Africa. He is the god of the changing of the seasons. He's the god of the weather patterns, specifically thunderstorms and rain. Uh, His equivalents in other cultures include Zeus in the Greeks, uh, Hadad in the Mesopotamian area, Babylon and so forth, and Set in the Egyptians. Uh, His name also becomes a generic honorific meaning that in some places of your Bible you hear about someone worshiping the Baals. Baal itself as a Phoenician word means either owner or land or master and it generically gets used of any god. The same way that we believe the word G-O-D actually initially uh, signified a high deity in the old Celtic religions and just in English came to mean any deity. In our case, the one specific God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But anyway, his worship included child sacrifice for the sake of the harvest. And when again, when Carthage rises, you see that being a hallmark of their worship, and you also see that being used as justification of the Roman Punic Wars. The other big deity that we hear mentioned in this time period in the Canaan region or in in Israel is Asherah. In fact, in your Bibles, you hear about Asherah poles, or the high places and groves. Groves meaning giant fields where these poles were set up in places of worship. These were both gods with fertility in mind. Baal, as a specific deity, was a bountiful harvest. Again, he's the god that grants rain. He's the god that changes the seasons. Asherah is the goddess that uh, has to do with human fertility. And an Ashira pole is, let me put it this way, it's just a, a means of worship dealing with human sexuality and we'll move on from there. But the word Ashira is founded in the Akkadian language, the ancient Akkadian language, which simply means the female great one. It's also a generic meaning goddess. Her equivalents include Diana in Greece, Ishtar in Babylon, and Hathor. In Egypt, And there's a reason why I'm not putting images of the god statues on the screen. First of all, depending upon which region you're talking about, what time period, their image looks starkly different. In uh, Ashira's case, she's either a, a woman that, that looks almost like a tree in a way that she's cylindrical, or she is a goddess with wings, or she in Egypt is a cow. So again, depending upon what era you're from and what nationality, what region, their images are completely different. Secondly, is this is a church, and I think that presenting a pagan deity's image in a house of worship might not necessarily be conducive to, uh, well, I don't want to get struck by lightning anytime soon, so let's move on. But the deities of the area, especially the more prominent ones, become prominent because of what they can give their worshipers. And the two things that the Canaanites were heavily influenced by is rain and good crops and having a lot of children. That was what was important to the people of this time. So in their theology, or rather their mythology, the deities that come to rise in power are the ones that can attract the most worshipers. And the ones that can attract the most worshipers are those that resemble what they want. So ultimately, as with all idolatries, what you're actually worshiping is yourself, what you want, what you can curry favor from. So in the books of the Kings and later on in the books of the Chronicles, the commentators make differentiations between a king that does good in the sight of the Lord and a king that does evil in the sight of the Lord. That comes down to four qualifiers. Does the king adhere to their personal covenant with God? Does the king promote the singular worship of God? Does God promote the exclusivity of worship to God? It's not just that you can rally the people into the temple in Jerusalem, but can you also get rid of the Asherah poles and the Asherah groves? Can you get rid of the high places where they worship Bial? Can you get rid of everything except the worship of God? And lastly, and but still importantly, can you promote God's justice as outlined in the Torah? Now, according to uh, the, king, the, the scholars of the books of the kings, Israel had a grand total of no good kings. They were 0 for 20. Judah only had 8. Uh, or, or there was also a bunch of kings that came ever so close. But unfortunately, they fell by the wayside towards the end of their reign. I also want to go over really quickly uh, what the place of the prophet is because from this point in the books onward to the end of the books of the kings, there are two central factors that bind the books together, Elijah and Elisha. So you have a three-pronged government. There's no legislature in the kingdom of Israel because all of the laws of Israel were given at Mount Sinai by God directly. So if you want to modify that a little bit, you could put legislative branch and in parentheses, God. But the king is the executive branch, the state department, the military. Uh, he executes the laws, and he's responsible for defending the people. If you want to look at terms of the printing of coins and, and uh, the collection of taxes, he also has a great deal to do with the economics of, the, of Israel. There is also the priesthood. Now in both kingdoms, even though the priesthood is, is strangely defined as to who qualifies, the priesthoods still hold the same basic functions. They lead worship, they instruct the people about the law and of worship, and they also, in many cases, interpret the law. More often than not, you have a judicial branch made of occasionally the king, but more often than not the people at the town gates, and the priesthood. Lastly, you have the prophets. The prophets, even though they serve a religious function, the religious function is, to call, is basically to point out that the king and the priests are idiots from time to time. It's their job to call the king to righteousness. It's their job to respond to the prayers of the priests on God's behalf, And it's also their job to rally the people in repentance back to God. Primary example of that is Amos chapter 1. So if you want to think of it this way, the king is the shepherd of the people underneath God. The priests go on behalf of the people to God in prayer and in sacrifice. And the prophets, on the other hand, minister to the people and the king on behalf of God. The checks and balances there. Ultimately, the prophets still maintain a good deal of influence from the period of the judges, even though it's not political. They still hold the king and the priest's account to their place in in the covenant of God. So the prophets are ambassadors from God to a fallen humanity, just as we are as Christians today. They are not fortune tellers. On their own merit, they do not have mystic powers. They are not soothsayers, nor are they witches. Their job is to be a mouthpiece of God. God tells them something. They tell someone else verbatim what God told them. So their job was more forthtelling than foretelling. They are ambassadors of God, meaning they forthtell to the people, to the king, to the priests, the judgments of God. And if they do tell someone about their future it is not because they have the innate ability to see through time. It is because God has given them a taste of what's about to happen so they can use that as authentication that the message that I am proclaiming to you is from God. In other words, if they predict the future, it's not because that God's given them the ability to step through time. Uh, Well, even though he does have that, and we do see that in a couple of cases, it is because through his will at certain points. The prophet has no control over this. Write that down. The prophet has no control over this. In fact, the apostle Peter goes out of his way in his letters to say, no word of inspiration was ever given by man's design, but everything from God. So if they are exposed to the future, it's because God's leading the charge, not them. They're foretelling the future is God's evidence that what they had been told was true. It's the way that in military terms, if any of you have been in the military, um, when a commanding officer sends an order, he also sends an authentication key. That way you can tell it's actually from this military commander. God uses the future telling, the foretelling, if you will, foretelling, as kind of the same authentication, so that the people hearing these things know that it was really God speaking. And if it doesn't come true, you know that's a false prophet and false prophets get one strike. If anybody goes on behalf of the name of God, uses it in the thus saith the Lord kind of way, and they predict the future and it doesn't come to pass, the Bible prescribes only one outcome. I'm not saying that we need to do that in today's time, but I am saying that if in the old law, You had one strike and you're out. I think that we need to do the same thing as far as that person's influence is concerned. But that's Robin's theology. Let's move on. Ahab, king over Israel. His name literally translates to father's brother. The implication there is he's the friend of his father. He is in his father's image. He will carry on what his father started. He was the seventh king over Israel. And it's by this time his father Omri has purchased and has started building the new capital city, which will be in Samaria. He reigned between uh, 871 and 852 B.C. Um, Again, Israel was very prosperous and powerful during this time, and one of the indications of that that you find in God's Word is that he actually held the Moabites in subjugation during his reign. He marries Jezebel, a princess from Sidon, what we also hear in the Bible referred to as Tyre. Um, He, through his wife, adopted the worship of Baal, and and we see that a lot. Incidentally, when, when Paul actually writes in, do not be unevenly yoked. He's not talking about different races. He's talking about a believer marrying an unbeliever. Solomon married unbelievers, and what happened to his spiritual life? Ahab marries an unbeliever. What happens to his spiritual life? Almost off the bat, he goes straight into Baal worship. So he adopted the worship of Baal. He allowed the worship of other gods within the kingdom of God. He actually goes into outright persecuting and murdering the priests and prophets still loyal to God in Israel. And in future writings, he becomes a prophetic image of being weak-willed and selfish. In fact, what happens in Naboth's vineyard when he doesn't get his way? What does he do immediately? He goes to his bedroom, he crawls into bed, he refuses to eat, and he salks. And that's not the first time in Scripture we hear that he does that. We also see coming in onto the scene the prophet Elijah. His name literally translates, my God is God, or my God is Yahweh, my God is the Lord. His life takes place from around 900 BC to 849 BC. He is from a, a city surrounded, he's from a city in the area of around Gibeon, from the tribal area of Manasseh. He's a prophet commissioned to preach to the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's also a leader and teacher of Israel's prophetic school, often named the Sons of the Prophet in your copy of God's Word. Later on, he will, be, he, he will not perish, incidentally. He will be taken into heaven on a chariot of fire, we see that in 2 Kings 2, uh, verses 3 and 9. And the prophet Malachi actually gives us this unfulfilled promise that he will return prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, one season called the day of the Lord already came to pass, and a foreshadowing of Elijah came upon the scene. We call him John the Baptist. But the great and terrible day of the Lord, that's reserved, that particular language is reserved for the period that is described in the book of Revelation. And this passage lends credence to the belief that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses sent to give testimony of Jesus at the temple during the time of Revelation. So moving on, the drought of Ahab, one of the first scenes from the book of uh, 1 Kings that you see the two interacting, is that Ahab is given a prophecy from Elijah because of his synchronism, where Elijah declares God's judgment. Basically, you will not receive, and your entire kingdom will not receive one drop of rain until I say so. And then unfortunately, once he delivers that small sermon, he ends up fleeing to the Kiriath Ravine because Ahab is trying to kill him. (laughs) But God cares for him there. The brook up until a certain point in time supplies him with a lot of fresh water and God actually cares for him by sending ravens uh, to supply both bread and meat for for all of his meals. So while the heat is cooling off police-wise in the kingdom of Israel, Elijah is well cared for and then later on when the time passes and when the drought takes full hold and the brook dries up, He begins sojourning in the wilderness until he comes across a widow. There are several miracles attributed to the prophet Elijah. These are the ones that occur in the book. Of course, there is his prediction of the three-and-a-half-year drought over Israel, the drought that is perpetual to him, but it does finally come to an end, or um, indefinite, I should say. Uh, There is, of course, the provision by God through the ravens. There is food for the widow at uh, Zarephath, which... He's this next miracle where a a woman cares for him while she's afraid that all of the meal that she has left, all of the grain that she has left, is going to run out. She has enough food left for her and her son, and then she's afraid that as soon as that's gone, they're going to perish. But once she goes back to fix herself, her son, and the prophet some bread, she discovers that the grain keeps multiplying and it doesn't run out. And so does the oil that she has in her house. The widow's son later comes sickly ill and almost dies. And Elijah, through the power of God, is about to bring him back from the dead. Of course, there's the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, we're going to see. There's the rain that ends the drought. There is the prophecy that is given on the death of Ahab's sons, which comes to pass. And of course, there is also the death of Jezebel. We finally get to one of the most dramatic scenes in the Old Testament, the victory on Mount Carmel. So Elijah throws down this challenge. God tells them the drought is about to end, but it's going to end because Israel will decide to come back to me. So Elijah calls all of Israel to Mount Carmel. And he asks them to choose this day whom you're going to serve. It's almost almost a, a repetition of what Joshua proclaimed. How long will you be between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve him. But if God is the Lord, Serve him only. And the crowd agrees to this. So the idea being that they will set up two sacrifices, one in the style of the God of Israel, one in the style of the Baals. And so two bulls are purchased and they're prepared as an offering, or rather they're brought out. Now Elijah is all by himself. And the practitioners of Baal worship over here include 450 prophets. And the prophets of Baal go first, they offer the sacrifice, they prepare the altar, and they start worshiping from morning until noon. And when noon happens and nothing has occurred, they start bloodletting themselves, they start dancing, they start singing, they start shouting, they start cutting themselves. So there's a mass of blood and, 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 and horror that's going on as they try to call down the fire with, from the power of Baal. And all the time, Elijah, knowing that there is no such God as Baal, Elijah is taunting them. He might not hear you. Your God might be deaf. He might be hard of hearing. He might be in the bathroom. That's actually in some of your translations, I believe, if memory serves. But he's having fun doing this. This is finally his chance to say the God I have served all along is God. Yours is just a hunk of stone somewhere. Maybe he's too busy to hear you. And by 3 p.m., by the time of the evening sacrifice, as the Bible says, there is no res- response from Baal. So it comes time for Elijah's sacrifice. He repaired the altar of God that had been shattered in the Carmel. He repairs the altar of God. He prepares the sacrifice. And then he does something kind of bizarre. This is a burnt sacrifice. Only he can't supply the fire, the priest can't supply supply the fire. Only the respective gods can send forth a fire to claim the sacrifice. That's the challenge. So out of a state of utter confidence in God, of utter faith in God, he commands the people around him to pull what little water that they can and drown the sacrifice and the wood that it's sitting on. And then once they do that, do it again. So they take their buckets, they grab more water, And they drown the wood a second time. He digs a trench, and the trench catches the excess water. Do it a third time. And then Elijah offers a simple prayer. Show them that there is a God in Israel. And God pours down a fire that is so hot, it consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the water, and according to the Bible, the stone. So the people see this dramatic revelation of God and choose God and put to death all 450 prophets that led them in false worship for so long. When Jezebel hears about this, she becomes enraged and has word sent to him that he is going to be exactly like the prophets that he put to the sword. So Elijah flees to the wilderness. Now Elijah escapes the fury of Jezebel and he begs God, take my life for I am no better than my ancestors. It's almost as though he's thinking to himself that not only is Jezebel going to find him but that because he is so discouraged by the lack of God's influence in Israel that he sees himself as worthless. I'm just like my ancestors. I'm as fallen as they are. I'm as feeble. I am even operating right now in fear and that's one of the most heart-wrenching things about this prophet's life. For as strong as he was, this is the time before the full sealing of the Holy Spirit of God that would later come in the New Testament. And as such, the Holy Spirit rests upon him long enough to deliver his message and and then some to offer power and comfort. But there are times in the prophet's life, even though he's speaking through the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit departs. And so he operates not always from faith. There are times that even, even having seen God's victory poured out. He's still afraid. So an angel wakes him up from his, his sleep when he finally allows himself to. And from that point, he journeys to Mount Horeb, which is one of the peaks that form Mount Sinai, where he spends 40 days fasting. In the Well, he spends 40 days in contemplation, I should say, in front of God. And he encounters God in chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. So he prays again, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. And he walks to God for this encounter, which we read about in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, starting with verse 9. He went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. But the Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord your God is about to pass by. And you've all heard this story, I'm sure. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake after the earthquake came a fire but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire came a gentle whisper the still small voice and when Elijah heard it he pulled back his cloak he pulled back his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave and the voice said to him what are you doing here Elijah He replied, I have been very zealous, he he repeats his prayer, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. He wants to die. He wants his life and his ministry to be over. If he were a pastor in today's time, he would be a pastor in a church that doesn't want to hear solid preaching, or that is looking to destroy his career. He, he wants to lay down the ministry. He wants to even go so far as to leave this life. But then the Lord says to him, go back the way that you came and go into the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, this is what the Lord is going to do to answer his prayer. Aram is about to cause trouble on Israel and their king is about to be marked for death by God. We'll get into that in just a second. But when you get there, he says anoint Haziel king over Aram anoint Jehu son of Nishmi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son uh, excuse me Elisha son of Zephat from abel to succeed you as prophet Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu Yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel. He's also giving, God is also giving this prophet an understanding that no, you're not the only one who still believes. There are more than seven, excuse me, there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So there are still many, many faithful still in the northern kingdom. So Elijah's new commission again was to replace the king of Aram and anoint Haziel, replace the king of Israel and anoint Jehu, uh, replace himself as a prophet and anoint Elisha, and to remember that there are still 7,000 faithful in the northern kingdom. Ben-Hadad is currently the king of Aram. He believes that Israel is his vassal kingdom. So he forms a coalition of 32 minor kings, And he demands of the northern kingdom all of its gold, all of its silver, its best women and children as slaves. And King Ahab agrees. Okay, it's all yours. Go ahead and take it. Just don't attack us. And then when the envoy comes the second time, no, on top of that, I'm going to send my officers and my best men into Samaria on top of whatever you send me, and they're going to search all of your homes. They're going to search your holy places. They're going to search every room, every closet that you have. And they're going to take from themselves as plunder anything that you've left behind. And Ahab calls together a conference with the elders of Israel, and they urge resistance. So Ahab prepares the city for assault, knowing that he's probably going to lose. But then a prophet of God, supposedly one of the children of the prophet, one of Elijah's, Elijah's, excuse me, his own pupil, comes to the king and he says, no, you are going to have Aram handed over into your hands. But the reason has nothing to do with mercy upon you. The reason is that so you will finally know that the God of Israel is the Lord. And the prophet goes so far as to instruct the king on how the attack will be conferred. And Aram is finally and utterly defeated after two assaults. And all of his officials, including King Ben-Hadid himself, surrender, being dressed in sackcloth and rope. Basically, his, his commissioners tell him, the king of Israel plays by the rules. And if you humble yourself before him, he will let you live. Unfortunately, they're not wrong. Remember, this is the person who is so atrocious that God has marked him for death and has Elijah going to search out his successor and anoint him as the new king. But instead of following God's instructions, Ahab makes a treaty with King Ben-Hadad. So Aram will return all of its northern cities captured previously back to Israel. An Israeli trade center, a diplomatic center where they can exchange, where they can sell their goods, will be built in his capital city of Damascus and been hated from that point forward before, will become a vassal king under Ahab in Samaria. So another prophet comes before Ahab. Because you did not do what I had asked, because a king that I had marked for death in judgment, you let live and made your ally, you will die and you will lose the kingdom. So God had judged the king of Aram to death, as well as Ahab. And the kingdom will be removed from the grip of his family. Then the next to last verse, excuse me, the next to last chapter in the book of 1 Kings is the sad story of Naboth's vineyard. So Ahab offers to buy this vineyard to be used basically as a kitchen garden for his palace. But Naboth, citing back to the book of Joshua, this land was given to my family by God. Remember, for the faithful of Israel, you do not own the promised land. The promised land owns you. Your job is to take care of it. This area that is designated by God for you and your family into perpetuity to maintain, to care for, and then to eat from, and to protect. You are tied to that land because you are a vassal of God who is its owner. And to get rid of that land, to sell that land, to abandon that land, is to abandon your family and is to abandon the covenant of God. So Naboth stands his ground. And what does Ahab do? He goes home and he sulks. So Jezebel decides, leave it to me. I know what to do. She signs a bunch of letters Seals it with Ahab's seal and sends it to the people in charge in the Jezreel region where Naboth's vineyard lays. She says to proclaim a fast. And when the city is gathered round, pick two scoundrels, pick two stool pigeons, whatever you want to call them, and have them seated very close to Naboth and have them proclaim in that assembly that Naboth is guilty of cursing both God and the king and he must be stoned. Because there are two witnesses as ordained by the law of God. She's, she's contorting the law of God to murder somebody. So she raises the false charges. And Daboth is not only publicly dishonored, but he's also summarily executed. So Elijah comes forward and he proclaims judgment. And in his judgment, Jezebel will die and her body will be devoured by dogs. Now something you've got to remember, and write this down in your notes. Dogs are unclean. To be devoured by dogs might be a, a quibble of translation. We might actually be talking about jackals or wolves here. We might not be talking about the domesticated uh, furball friends that we have today. But in any event, they are scavengers, they are meat eaters, they are unclean. And for you to be devoured by them is a significant curse upon herself. In fact, Ahab, when he dies, his blood is licked up by dogs. Same pronouncement of of a curse. This is God signifying that this person was beyond hope, that they were accursed. So Jezebel would die and be devoured by dogs. Ahab's family would die out. Ahab himself will die. And Israel will have an immediate other dynasty after only two kings. But Ahab repents. Ahab throws himself upon the mercy of God and God relents. God is always merciful. And it surprises me to no end just and and gladdens my heart to no end with Samson, with Ahab, with King David, with Solomon, all of these people who really messed up, who abandoned their commitment to God, who abandoned their promises to God, who abandoned the law of God, yet God holds out until finally there's no hope with them. So Ahab relents, and God says, because, effectively, because you have humbled yourself before me, the kingdom will not be removed from your hands. They will stay in your hands until your death, but it will be removed from your son's hands. So the Omri dynasty will last no more than three kings. And of course we hear about Jezebel, who fell from great height, and whose body was indeed devoured. And in, for the rest of the Bible, her name becomes a prophetic image for ungodly enticement, ungodly influence, and duplicity. From that point forward, Ab reigns over three more years of peace. But there comes a time when he meets with his son-in-law, King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Uh, they they form an alliance through marriage. Jehoshaphat marries uh, his daughter, and Ahab conspires with him to form this, this coalition to retake the city of Gilead. Jehoshaphat agrees, but under one condition, that he receives counsel from God. So by this time, apparently, uh, Israel now has a bunch of prophets that rise up from the ranks, and Ahab calls 400 to him to ask them to give an account of what God wants, and they encourage him to make this assault. In fact, one of them goes so far is to cast an iron set of bull's horns and basically tells him, strap this on your chariot, for you will gore Aram with these horns. So these 400 prophets are are screaming for the blood of the Arameans. And Jehoshaphat, I think, kind of smells a rat, and he goes to his father-in-law and he says, Don't you have any real prophets here? Don't you have any actual men of God? And Ahab says, yeah, we've got this one guy called the Makina, but I hate him. He never says anything good about me. Okay, so that's our guy. Bring him forward. Uh, So they ask him, tell us the truth. What does God say about us attacking Ram. And uh, speak what they're speaking, incidentally. Agree with the rest of them. And, and he does very sarcastically at first. And you can tell that when he says, oh yeah, go ahead. Attack them. You'll win. Don't worry about it. It's blatantly obvious that the prophet is being sarcastic because, Je- because Jehoshaphat basically says, something's up here. And Ahab says, I- I'm ordering you. Tell me the truth. And he does. Israel will become a flock of sheep without a shepherd, scattered. Basically, you will fail. So what does Ahab do? He shoots the messenger. He jails Mekena until he returns safely, the scriptures tells us. So Ahab also, incidentally, he tricks Jehoshaphat into maintaining his kingly robes, basically to stand as a decoy while they go into battle. So Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're, they're riding into battle together, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is dressed the way that the king should and Ahab, king of Israel, is dressed like a regular common soldier. And so the Arameans try to attack Jehoshaphat thinking that he's Ahab but they recognize him for who he is and they turn away. And sure enough, a stray arrow hits Ahab in the chink of his armor and he calls his charioteer to ride him to Jerusalem, excuse me, to ride him back to Samaria as quickly as he can and by the time they get there, He has lost so much blood that he dies. So Uzziah, his son, becomes king. The dogs lick up Ahab's blood. But Uzziah is met with God's vengeance, and he only reigns in Israel for two years before the Omerian dynasty is no more. So for discussion in your groups this week, always go over your reading together, your journal notes, your highlights, but I want you to consider these three questions. We've talked about synchronism. Synchronism, it's not necessarily the belief in more than one God, but it is the acceptance of the belief that there are more than one God, and all beliefs are valid, all truths are just as valid. You believe what you want to believe, and we'll all be okay with it. So the question is, is our society synchronic today? Here's a big question. Are our churches? Are our churches? And I want you to really consider this well. What is God's judgment and syncretism? Let's bow our hearts and discuss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. As we commit it and ourselves into your hands, we ask again that you would teach us to hold firm to the conviction of our hearts that you've given us, to hold fast to your truth, Lord, that these would not merely be stories, but these would be accounts of people who are examples both to us of what to do and what not to do. As encouragers and as warnings, help us not to be that tale of warning. Help us in our lives to be that example of faithfulness, of strength under pressure, and of the goodness and love of God that only you can grant us. Help us to reflect your love to others. Help us to draw closer together and closer to you as we seek to know you and to make you known. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. In all God's people said, "Amen." Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at Church.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.